Chapter Sixteen of In the Mayor's Parlor by J. S. Fletcher. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Castle Wall. Brent went to bed that night, wondering what it was that Queenie Crood wanted. Since their first meeting in the castle grounds, they had met frequently. He was getting interested in Queenie. She developed on acquaintance. Instead of being the meek and mild mouse of Simon Crood's domestic hearth that Brent had fancied her to be on his visit to the tannery, he was discovering possibilities in her that he had not suspected. She had spirit and imagination and a continually rebellious desire to get out of Simon Crood's cage and spread her wings in flight, anywhere so long as Hathelsborough was left behind. She had told Brent plainly that she had thought him foolish for buying property in the town. What was there in that rotten old borough, said Queenie, to keep any man of spirit and enterprise there? Brent argued the point in his downright way. It was his job, he conceived, to take up his cousin's work where it had been laid down. He was going to regenerate Hathelsborough. "'And that you'll never do,' affirmed Queenie. "'You might as well try to blow up the castle keep with a halfpenny cracker. "'Hathelsborough people are like the man in the Bible. "'They're joined to their idols. "'You can try and try, and you'll only break your heart or your back in the effort, "'just as Wallingford would have done. "'If Wallingford had been a wise man, "'he'd have let Hathelsborough go to the devil in its own way. "'Then he'd have been alive now.' "'Well, I'm going to try,' declared Brent. "'I said I would, and I will. "'You wait till I'm elected to the town council. "'Then we'll see.' "'It's fighting a den of wild beasts,' said Queenie. "'You won't have a rag left on you when they're through with you.' She used to tell him at these meetings of the machinations of Simon Crude and Coppinger and Mallet against his chances of success in the Castle Ward election. According to her, they were moving heaven and earth to prevent him from succeeding Wallingford. Evidently believing Queenie to be a tame bird that carried no tails, they were given to talking freely before her during their nightly conclaves. Brent heard a good deal about the underhand methods in which municipal elections are carried on in small country towns, and was almost as much amused as amazed at the unblushing corruption and chicanery of which Queenie told him and now he fancied that she had some special news of a similar sort to give him. The election was close at hand, and he knew that Simon and his gang were desperately anxious to defeat him. Although Simon had been elected to the mayoralty, his party in the town council was in a parlous position. At present it had a majority of one. If Brent were elected, that majority would disappear, and there were signs that at the annual elections in the coming November it would be transformed into a minority. Moreover, the opponent whom Brent had to face in this by-election was a strong man, a well-known, highly respected ratepayer, who, though an adherent of the old party, was a fair-minded and moderate politician, and likely to secure the suffrages of the non-party electors. It was going to be a stiff fight and Brent was thankful for the occasional insights into the opposition's plans of campaign which Queenie was able to give him. But there were other things than this to think about, and he thought much as he lay wakeful in bed that night and as he dressed next morning. The proceedings at the adjourned inquest had puzzled him. 
left him doubtful and uncertain. He was not sure about the jealousy theory. He was not sure about Mrs. Saumarez from what he had seen of her personally and from what he had heard of her. He was inclined to believe that she was not only a dabbler in politics with a liking for influencing men who were concerned in them, but that she was also the sort of woman who likes to have more than one man in leash. He was now disposed to think that there had been love passages between her and Wallingford, and not only between her and Wallingford, but between her and Wellesley. There might, after all, be something in the jealousy idea. But then came in the curious episode of Mrs. Mallet, and the mystery attaching to it. As things presented themselves at present, there seemed to be no chance whatever that either Mrs. Mallet or Wellesley would lift the veil on what was evidently a secret between them. The only satisfactory and straightforward feature about yesterday's proceedings, he thought, was the testimony of Mrs. Bunning as to her unguarded door. Now, at any rate, it was a sure thing that there had been ready means of access to the mayor's parlour that evening. What was necessary was to discover who it was that had taken advantage of them. After breakfast, Brent went round to see Hawthwaite. Hawthwaite gave him a chair and eyed him expectantly. "'We don't seem to be going very fast ahead,' remarked Brent. "'Mr. Brent,' exclaimed Hawthwaite, "'I assure you we're doing all we can. "'But did you ever know a more puzzling case? "'Between you and me, I'm not at all convinced "'about either Dr. Wellesley or Mrs. Mallet. "'There's a mystery there which I can't make out. "'They may have said the truth, and they mayn't, and—' "'Cut them out,' interrupted Brent, "'for the time being, anyway. "'We got some direct evidence yesterday for the first time.' "'As how?' questioned Hawthwaite. "'That door into Bunning's room,' replied Brent. "'That's where the murderer slipped in.' "'Aye, but did he?' said Hawthwaite. "'If one could be certain—' "'Look here,' asserted Brent. "'There is one thing that is certain, dead certain. "'That handkerchief.' "'Well?' asked Hawthwaite. "'That should be followed up more,' continued Brent. "'There's no doubt whatever that that handkerchief, "'which Wellesley admits is his, got sent by mistake to one or other of Mrs. Mariner's other customers. That's flat. Now you can trace it. How? exclaimed Hawthwaite. A small article like that? It can be done with patience, said Brent. It's got to be done. That handkerchief got into somebody's hands. That somebody is probably the murderer. As to how it can be traced, well, I suggest this. As far as I'm conversant with laundry matters, families, such as Mrs. Mariner says she works for, have laundry books. These books are checked, I believe, when the washing is sent home. If there's an article missing, the person who does the checking notes it. If a wrong article's enclosed, that too is noted and returned to the laundry. If Wellesley's handkerchief got to the wrong place, why wasn't it returned? demanded Hawthwaite. To be sure, but that's just what you've got to find out, retorted Brent. You ought to go to Mrs. Mariner's laundry and make an exhaustive search of her books, lists, and so on, till you get some light, see? Mrs. Mariner has, I should say, a hundred customers, remarked Hawthwaite. Don't matter if Mrs. Mariner's got five hundred customers, said Brent. That's got to be seen into. If you aren't going to do it, I will. Whoever it was that was in that mayor's parlour 
tried to burn a blood-stained handkerchief there. That handkerchief was Wellesley's. Wellesley swears he was never near the mayor's parlour. I believe him. So that handkerchief got by error into the box or basket of some other customer of Mrs. Mariner. Trace it. He rose and moved towards the door, and Hawthwaite nodded. "'We'll make a try at it, Mr. Brent,' he said. "'But, as I say, to work on a slight clue like that—' "'I've known of far slighter clues,' replied Brent. Yet as he went away, he reflected on the extreme thinness of this clue. It was possible that the handkerchief had passed through more hands than one before settling in those of the person who had thrown it on the hearth, stained with Wallingford's blood, in the mayor's parlour. But it was a clue, and in Brent's opinion, THE clue. One fact in relation to it had always struck him forcibly. The murderer of his cousin was either a very careless and thoughtless person, or had been obliged to quit the mayor's parlour very hurriedly. Anyone meticulously particular about destroying clues, or covering up traces, would have seen to it that the handkerchief was completely burnt up before leaving the room. As it was, it seemed to Brent that the murderer had either thrown the handkerchief on the hearth, seen it catch fire, and paid no more attention to it, which would denote carelessness, or had quitted the place immediately after flinging it aside, which would imply that some sound from without had startled him or her. And was it him, or was it her? There were certain features of the case which had inclined Brent of late to speculating on the possibility that his cousin had been murdered by a woman. And to be sure, a woman was now in the case, Mrs. Mallet. If only he knew why Mrs. Mallet went to see the doctor and the mayor. But that, after all, was mere speculation, and he had a busy morning before him in relation to his election business. He had been continuously engaged all the time when at three o'clock he hurried to the castle grounds to meet Queenie. He found her in her usual haunt, a quiet spot in the angle of a wall where she was accustomed to sit and read. "'Well, and why urgent?' asked Brent, as he dropped on the seat at her side. "'To make sure that you'd come,' retorted Queenie. "'Didn't want to leave it to chance.' "'I'm here,' said Brent. "'Go ahead with the business.' "'Did you see the monitor last night, and that facsimile they gave away with it?' inquired Queenie. "'I did. Saw the facsimile before it was published. Peppermore showed it to me.' "'Very well. That's the urgent business. I know whose machine that letter, the original, I mean, was typed on.' "'You do? Great Scott! Whose, then?' "'Uncle Simon Crude's. Fact.' "'Whew!' So the old fossil's got such a modern invention as a typewriter, has he? And you think? Don't think, I know. He's had a typewriter for years. It's an old-fashioned thing, a good deal worn out. He rarely uses it, but now and then he operates with one finger slowly, and that letter originated from him, his machine. Proof, said Brent. Queenie took up a book that lay on the seat between them, and from it extracted a folded copy of the monitor's facsimile. She leaned nearer to Brent. "'Now look,' she said. "'Do you notice that two or three of the letters are broken? That M, part of it's gone. That O, half made. The top of that A is missing. More noticeable still. Do you see that small T 
there is slanting the wrong way well all that's on uncle simon's machine i knew where that letter had originated as soon as ever i saw this facsimile last night she laid aside the supplement and once more opening her book produced a sheet of paper look at this she continued when uncle simon went out to the tannery this morning i just took advantage of his absence to type out the alphabet on his machine now then you glance over that and compare the faulty letters with those in the facsimile what do you say now you're a smart girl queenie said brent you're just the sort of girl i've been wanting to meet the sort that can see things when they're right in front of her eyes oh my that's sure positive proof that old simon oh broke in queenie sharply oh i say before brent could look up he was conscious that a big and bulky shadow had fallen across the gravelled path at their feet he lifted his eyes there in his usual raiment of funereal black his top hat at the back of his head his hands behind him under the ample skirts of his frock coat his broad fat face heavy with righteous and affectedly sorrowful indignation stood simon crude his small pig-like eyes were fixed on the papers which the two young people were comparing hello exclaimed brent he was quick to see that he and queenie were in for a row probably for a row of a decisive sort which would affect both their lives and he purposely threw as much hearty insolence into his tone as he could summon eavesdropping eh mr crude simon withdrew a hand from the sable folds behind him and waved it in lordly fashion i've no words to waste on impudent young fellows as comes from nobody knows where he said loftily my words is addressed to my niece as i see sitting there a deceiving of her lawful relative and guardian go you home at once miss rot exclaimed brent she'll go home when she likes and not at all if she doesn't like you stick where you are queenie i'm here and as if to prove the truth of his words he slipped his right arm round queenie's waist clasped it tightly and turned a defiant eye on simon see that he said well that's just where queenie stops as long as ever queenie likes eh queenie the girl reddening as brent's arm slipped round her instinctively laid her free hand on his wrist and as he appealed to her he felt her fingers tighten there with a firm understanding pressure that's all right he whispered to her we've done it girlie it's for good he looked up at simon whose mouth was opening with astonishment queenie's my girl old bird he went on she isn't going anywhere not anywhere at all at anybody's bidding unless she likes and why shouldn't she be here it seemed from the pause that followed as if simon would never find his tongue again but at last he spoke so this here is what's been going on behind my back is it miss he demanded pointedly ignoring brent and fixing his gaze on queenie a carrying on with strangers at my very gates as you might say and in public places in a town of which i'm chief magistrate what sort of return do you call this miss i should like to know for all that i've done for you me that's lodged and boarded and clothed you ever since what have i done for you in return demanded queenie with a flash of spirit saved you the wages of a couple of servants for all these years 
"'But this is the end, if you're going to throw that in my teeth.' Brent drew Queenie to her feet and turned her away from Simon. He gave the big man a look over his shoulder. "'That's it, my friend,' he said. "'That's the right term, the end. "'Find somebody else to do your household drudgery. "'This young lady's done her last stroke for you. "'And now don't begin to bluster,' he added, "'as Simon, purpling with wrath, shook his fist. "'We'll just leave you to yourself.' He led Queenie away down a side-path, and once within its shelter, put a finger under her chin, and lifting her face, looked steadily at her. "'Look here, girlie,' he said. "'You heard what I whispered to you just now. "'It's for good. "'Didn't I say that? "'Well, is it?' Queenie managed to get her eyes to turn on him at last. "'Do you mean it?' she murmured. "'I just do,' answered Brent fervently. "'Say the word.' "'Yes, then,' whispered Queenie. She looked at him wonderingly when he had bent and kissed her. "'You're an extraordinary man,' she said. "'Whatever am I going to do now? Homeless!' "'Not much,' exclaimed Brent. "'You come along with me, Queenie. I'm a good hand at thinking fast. I'll put you up warm and comfortable at Mother Appleyard's, and as quick as the thing can be done we'll be married. Got that into your little head? Come on, then.' That night Brent told Tansley of what had happened and what he was going to do. Tansley listened, laughed, and shook his head. "'All right, my lad,' he said. "'I've no doubt you and Queenie'll suit each other excellently. But you've settled your chances of winning the election, Brent. Simon Crude'll bring up every bit of his heavy artillery against you now, and will smash you.'" End of chapter 16